Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that broods over the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and I'm joined by our colleagues Alan Zervis and Rob Fraser. Alan, what's one of the things you've got for the program today? I'll be talking about the crash testing that I attended this week, David. Very interesting it was. Yeah, very important point that has grown in its importance over the years. Rob, have you got something that along similar lines? To follow on from Alan's point, I'll be talking about the latest Jeep Wrangler and how it has bombed out in the ANCAP ratings. Bombed out is perhaps the appropriate term, isn't it? Also in this program, we've got some news stories with David Campbell, including Tesla reveals its Model 3 Australian prices. In Sydney, they have a landmark called the Meccano Set. It's an ancient structure to hold signs at traffic lights and a major intersection. They had to replace it and they chose to replicate the old brutalist design from 1962. We find out why. A few motoring minutes and some quirky news with Brian Smith. But first, let's begin the program with the more serious news. You're listening to Overdrive. In a boost for the safety of tradespeople and commercial vehicle operators, the new Toyota Hi-Ace van has achieved a five-star safety rating from Independent Vehicle Safety Authority, ANCAP. The all-electric Nissan Leaf also scored well with five stars, while the new Jeep Wrangler only managed a disappointing one-star safety rating. The new Mazda 3, the Toyota RAV4, the Volkswagen Touareg, Lexus UX and Range Rover Evoque have all achieved maximum five-star ANCAP safety ratings, in the latest round of independent vehicle testing. Jaguar Australia, a founding partner of the Australian Electric Vehicle Council, has signed an official agreement with Australia's biggest public electric vehicle charging networks, ChargeFox. The relationship makes Jaguar the first local manufacturer to formally support EV drivers through an agreement with the ultra-rapid electric vehicle charging network that is currently being rolled out nationally. The new partnership helps to ensure that Jaguar owners will have easy access to the rapidly developing multiple outlet vehicle charging network. By the end of the year, a national network of 22 ultrachargers will be operational, forming a network connecting Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne and Adelaide. As well, additional ultra-rapid charging stations are being planned for Western Australia and Tasmania. Tesla fans have been waiting for the Model 3 for some time. It looks as if the long wait is finally over. The American electric car brand has opened sales of its most affordable model to Australian customers, and buyers can now configure and order their Model 3s online. Tesla's Australian website says orders placed now will be delivered in August, but buyers who put down their $1,500 deposit more than three years ago will get first priority, which means that new customers will most likely have to wait a little longer. Two versions will be available initially. Prices start at $66,000 before on-road costs for the standard Range Plus version and $85,000 for the performance. Each compares favourably to key rivals. The entry price is on par with the new Hyundai Kona electric vehicle SUV and slightly more than a base BMW 3 Series and Mercedes-Benz C-Class but the standard specifications trumps rivals in terms of performance and technology. 
The standard Model 3 has a range of 460 kilometers and a top speed of 225 kilometers per hour, sprinting from rest to 100 in 5.6 seconds. The performance version has a range of 560 kilometers and can accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometers in just 3.4 seconds. The introduction of the Model 3 is timely as the Australian market prepares for a raft of electric cars due in the next 18 months. Audi and Mercedes-Benz will enter the market next year to compete with the Jaguar I-Pace and Tesla Model X SUVs. Volvo has significantly undercut the leading German luxury brands with the pricing of its new mid-size S60 and V60 sedan and wagon. Starting at just under $55,000 plus on-road costs, the entry-level S60 T5 is nearly $9,000 cheaper than the Mercedes-Benz C200 and almost $13,000 less than the entry-level BMW 3 Series. Only the entry-level Audi A4 gets close to the S60's base price. It's a similar story for the Volvo V60 wagon, which undercuts the cheapest Mercedes-Benz by nearly $10,000. The outgoing BMW by a bit more than $6,000. The pricing is much lower than Volvo Car Australia's managing director Nick Connor recently said it would be, but makes sense considering his desire for a no-discounting policy on the new car. On sale in August, the S60 and V60 return Volvo to the Australia passenger car market for the first time since it dropped the V40 and S90 in 2018. The V60 cross-country is expected to arrive in 2020. Engineers from the University of Texas are building and testing a new low-cost self-powered system that will detect vehicles, improve the visibility of stop signs and help prevent intersection deaths, particularly at rural locations. Rural roads account for 70% of the United States byways and the location of 54% of all fatalities, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Highway Administration. Without access to a power supply, they are more likely than other roads to lack signals and active traffic signage. To improve driver safety, the University of Texas College of Engineering created a low-cost, self-powered intersection detection system to alert rural motorists about potential dangers. The next-generation stop sign uses a multi-pixel passive infrared sensor that detects a vehicle as it approaches the intersection. Once the vehicle is within the sensing range, a signal beacon triggers the stop sign's flashing system. The off-roadway system can be installed on urban or rural roads, completely independent of the utility power grid, because it is powered by small solar panels and functions in all weather conditions. Austria's University of Technology is developing an innovative camera system that recognises pedestrians' intentions to cross the road and automatically changes traffic signals to accommodate them as part of a project that was commissioned by the city of Vienna. In Vienna, there are around 200 push-button signal pedestrian crossings that allow people to cross the road safely after a brief waiting time. But often pedestrians do not wait for the green phase and cross the street when the lights are red, resulting in drivers having to stop even though nobody is there. The new innovative camera-based system recognises the intention of pedestrians to cross the road and halts the traffic automatically. When a pedestrian enters the zone, custom-designed deep-learning algorithms analyse their motion path, determining within a second whether or not they intend to cross the road. The system then works with the city's existing traffic management equipment, determining how soon the signal controller can activate the walk light, 
based on the current traffic flow. Once the light is illuminated, it stays lit long enough for all people detected by the camera to safely get across. However, if the system sees that someone has approached the crossing but then left, it will cancel the walk light request, allowing traffic to flow uninterrupted. And that has been the news. Back in 1993, the Australian New Car Assessment Program started rating cars, having crash test them, for their safety. Star rating, 0 to 5 stars, it created a great controversy at the time as to whether it was a real reflection of the safety of the car or just in one particular or two tests. The reality is now that it is part and parcel of our culture, our understanding, our consideration of vehicles. But what is a test really like? Well, we're very fortunate that our roving correspondent, Alan Zervis, has been to one of those crash tests, and he joins us now to talk about it. Alan, was it spectacular? You can just call me Rover, David. <laughs> Rover. <laughs> it was spectacular. Funnily enough, it was a side impact test, so far less violent than I expected. Obviously, I've seen the front-on tests on video uh, and the three-quarter tests. So this one, they use a sled that's propelled towards the car at 50 kilometres an hour. And uh, it's got a, a honeycomb piece of apparatus in front of it that's meant to mimic an oncoming car crashes into the side of the car and then they go and uh, have a look at the dummies and see what uh, damage has been done, etc. It's still pretty spectacular, isn't it? When I went years ago and I was doing some videoing, I didn't video the actual crash test because they had a million cameras around it. I videoed the people watching the crash test and they were sitting there saying, right, yes, yes, fine. And then when it happened, the severity of it, the enormity of it, even though it's 64 kilometres an hour, was shocking to people. It just brings the reality, the intensity of a crash to people's mind. Was that your reflection? It was indeed. And, and of course, I've been in a, a reasonably serious car crash many years ago. Hmm. And when you're inside the car, obviously, it seems to take a very long time. Everything is uh, is, is amplified and stretched out. Mm. From the outside, it seems to happen very quickly. Yeah, it is. And it brings to reality that an airbag goes off and is does, has, had, has done its job within milliseconds, whereas most people think it's a nice big balloon. Although a side impact, sometimes those airbags stay looking like they're inflated. Yeah, so the side curtain airbags uh, obviously were deployed, as was the thorax airbag in the seat. The airbag for the steering wheel and the uh, passenger side airbags did not deploy. So in most cars, that's the same now, but only the ones that are needed will actually deploy. Mm. And they stay like that um, so that if there's glass broken, it won't uh, come into the face of the person sitting in the seat. Because a front airbag flops in front of you. It expands, but then flops. Well, of course, all of the airbag, the use of the airbag is when it's deflating. So not when it's inflating, but when it's deflating. So when your head hits the bag, uh, if it was still inflating, it would kill you. Yeah, because they come out at about 250 kilometres an hour, I think. Well, they're powered by solid rocket fuel. Oh, OK. Brings it home, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed, which is why uh, the Takata recall was so important, because the rocket fuel uh, or the, whatever they used was faulty and went uh, over time, became um, highly reactive. And it, uh, in, instead of blowing out in a controlled way, it just blew the device apart. And, of course, the you've got to hold that in a canister 
and uh, bits of that canister came out and thus became shrapnel. They do a lot of work in preparing the vehicle, don't they? It's not just, oh, beauty, drive it in here, put it on there. They, they're meticulous in trying to make sure it is consistent, fair and comparable with other tests. Correct. Well, what they the point that they made, and, and I think this was the most important thing, was that the vehicles are chosen at random and they must be prepared as if they were going to be delivered to a customer. Hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they then put their little diagrams all over it, bits of tape and so forth, so that they can see what, if anything, moves or if there are undesirable consequences or whatever. Then, of course, they put the dummies inside. And the dummies have what they termed very bad makeup. <laughs> and, and that's so that they can tell, like we used to in metalwork class, they'll put blue on something, for example, and then you can see when the airbag has deployed mm. where that's hit the face of the, uh, of the, of the dummy. Mm. And those dummies, by the way, uh, are worth up to $1.4 million. Oh, it's not cheap to run one of these, is it? No. Uh, moreover, the test costs $490,000 per test, plus the cars, and they require five cars. So it's not just one test. They're doing side impact. They're doing full front-on, and then I think they do offset. Is that some of the tests they do? There's the test where it's uh, run straight into a wall, uh, then offset. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, say, from the middle of the car over to one side on the passenger side, and they did say that they're going to be uh, doing that um, side passenger test from next year. Huh. Uh, and they do mix the tests up from time to time. They also uh, do a pole test. So not a pole dance, but a pole test. A far more catastrophic result, yes. That's where if you slid sideways into a pole, the energy is concentrated, uh, of the crash is concentrated on the pole, and that's a very, can occur quite regularly. And so they're trying to test for that particular feature because it's important that you test not just a driver, but passengers as well. For example, the Amarok doesn't have as much airbags, I don't think, for the uh, rear seat passengers on the side, does it? Correct. And one of the points that they made at the presentation yesterday was that one of the things they want to bring in in future is passengers hitting other passengers. Oh, okay. Something that we've not considered before. So, for example, uh, two people sitting in the front seat. So there's you and me, we're driving down the highway, the, we get hit from the side or from the front or whatever. We may not connect with the rest of the car, but we may connect with each other. Our heads might bang together and we could still kill each other. Yeah, it's an evolving world, isn't it? And it's a, a continuing world. Alan, that has been wonderfully informative. Thank you for your time. Our pleasure as always, David. And that's Alan Service, who's been to an ANCAP crash test and seen the complexity and the enormity and the development of this particular safety consideration. You're listening to Overdrive. Alan touched on one new vehicle that did not perform at all well in the crash test. Rob Fraser gives us some more details. Jeep has had some problems of late with the Grand Cherokee the subject of many complaints to the ACCC and now the latest Wrangler bombs out with a one-star ANCAP safety rating. The key areas of concern are that it achieves scores of just 50% for adult occupant protection, 49% for vulnerable road user protection and only 32% for safety assist. ANCAP Chief Executive James Goodwin said... The safety performance of the Wrangler is limited, falling well shy of the expected standard in three of the four key areas of assessment. Chest protection was a concern for the driver and rear passenger in each of the frontal crash tests, 
a number of penalties were applied for structural deformation and potential leg injury hazards, and base variants lack autonomous emergency braking altogether. This is Overdrive across Australia. And now Rob and Alan join us to talk about some of the news snippets that have come our way. The first thing is the latest car sales figures for May 2019 have come out and uh, the Australian market continues to be down by just over 8%. Rob, we've often talked about utes and SUVs. Are they trying to give us a renaissance as holding us together? I think so, although the sales still have slipped a little bit in those areas, but they're still representing about half of the overall sales. Actually, the very large SUVs are just one that is doing moderately well. There's only about two categories that are actually got a positive growth. Alan, you might more be in the sports cars. Where are they at? Well, like all of the rest of the market, you know, things are a little bit down. There's a few sports cars that are doing very well. Mm -hmm. But uh, one car company said to me once that uh, with two small two-door coupes, that most of the people that already want one have one. Yeah, it must be a market that must flourish at the beginning and then continue on cautiously at the end. Yeah, well, like the rest of the market, as I said, it is down uh, this year. Uh, But I think that's more reflective of the economy generally, that the market is down overall and very few manufacturers as a whole have seen an increase. Obviously, the Ford Mustang is the biggest seller in the market. I think that's followed by the BMW 2 Series, the convertible and the coupe, and the Mazda MX-5. The Mustang outsells the Mazda MX-5 10 to 1 nearly. I mean, it's that Mustang is doing remarkably well. I did an exercise uh, at the end of last year, and uh, Mustang was outselling all of the rest of the sports cars combined. Yeah, indeed it is. Uh, Moving on, uh, Jaguar design boss Ian Cullum quits. Do you have a favourite from his time? He was an important designer, wasn't he, for Jaguar? Well, he was there for about 20-odd years, and he uh, did a few fantastic things himself. He he made a Mark II for himself. Uh, he recreated this magnificent uh, heritage car. They had actually started receiving orders from it. And uh, he said, no, no, look, you know, I'm not making this. This is just for me. But he did have to actually eventually make some. But my favourite uh, Jaguar design, because I've been an XJ man from when I could walk, and so I would say it's the XJ. I love the XJC, the two-door version of that. He, he did build a modern version of the Mark II, but he did get Jaguar away from that sheer copycat heritage the s type which i thought was not particularly elegant in any way but then he moved to reflecting the heritage but in a modern way of which the f type would be a a beautiful car rob do you do you see it that way oh look absolutely but i i I also like some of his earlier work in the aston martin yep where he was responsible for the db7 beautiful car Hmm. They did a couple of concepts, a CX-75, sounds like a Mazda, four-wheel drive by four electric motors. The car was featured in the 2015 Spectre movie. It was built around the early 2000s, up to 2010, only built seven cars. It would have been beautiful to do, low, slick, in the modern style, but not too many things like the Lamborghini wings and angles. It was rather nice. Stunningly beautiful. Yeah, It was good, wasn't it? Yeah, beautiful thing. You're listening to Overdrive. 
Way back in the early 60s, out in a suburb of Sydney, they erected a large system to try and put up signposts and traffic signals. It was very elementary, solid in its way, and became known affectionately as the Meccano set. Well, it comes a time where that needed to be replaced and you could put a quite different system, a modern design to it. The community hated the idea. They had their affection for this Meccano set and so it has been replaced in a very similar manner. But don't let me try and describe it. Let's get an expert. I have on the line my good friend and long-term colleague and traffic engineer, Graham Patterson. Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. Why did the Road Authority go back and duplicate the old design, albeit in modern materials? Because the structure was ageing, you know, but I think bridges are designed for a lifespan in the order of 100 years, but signposting structures, they're they're not as long-lived. They can rust and wear and tear and fatigue with uh, movement over the years. So it it did, did become time to replace it. Initially, there were thoughts about just replacing with modern technology, you know, the mast arms of cantilevered posts you see at a lot of traffic lights with signs, but there's big spans out there. Um, so some public consultation was carried out in early 2015. A lot of letters were sent out and people were invited to send their comments in. There were, I believe, 220 comments came back in, and amazingly, uh, of those, uh, 201 said, keep the present structure, we really value it. 12 people said it should be removed, and others were... Um, a bit undecided and perhaps take the cheapest approach. So um, 201 out of 222 support keeping the the structure as it was, which is quite amazing, the public support level for it. Uh, So it was decided to rebuild it in the same in the same appearance, the same sort of mechanical structure. But it does have some traffic engineering advantages too. It means there's only four little posts out there. So if you are unfortunate enough to have a traffic accident, lose control of your vehicle, um, there's a much lower chance of hitting a big uh, post if there's only four major ones. There are there are still some smaller traffic light poles, but not, um, not as many as, as if we had gone to present-day type of structures with different ones for signposting and traffic lights. Um, another interesting thing about the structure is because it was designed by main roads for signposting, when the Department of Motor Transport uh, just came to put its traffic signal works in, it decided to run the, the cables, wiring for the lights uh, across the structure rather than doing the traditional thing, which is digging under the road and putting in um, pipes to carry the cables. Uh, but the structure wasn't really designed to carry the cables. So the um, the maintenance technicians who looked after the traffic lights always cursed whenever they had to work on it because it was very difficult to get the cables across. Uh, they, they had to go through some small holes in steel work and um, whenever we told them a traffic light had to be at a new spot, they'd have to go out there with drills and cut new holes in the structure to put on their supporting brackets and equipment. And the um, structural engineers always had anyone drilling holes in there finely designed structures because it can weaken them. Mm, That's lovely. Talking about the structure and what have you, having just the four posts means there's less targets to hit, but gee, you want to protect them very strongly, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to take one out because the whole lot would fall down. Yeah, surprisingly though, in the 57 years, and I think there's currently 80,000 vehicles a day go through it, there hasn't been any major structural damage to the posts, those four posts. They are protected by uh, little ring concrete walls, so they're... um, 
a bit like the New Jersey curve. You'll see um, separating traffic on motorways these days. So, so they're particular bits, but I, I, I still wouldn't like to run into one, of course. Now, indeed, prevention is better than cure. Another interesting point about the Meccano set, uh, that was just an in-house name which the, um, the traffic light um, technicians used to use for it. Uh, when talking to each other. Its official name is Traffic Control Signal 164, but informally everyone called it the Meccano set. Now, the public didn't call it that for some time, but uh, when we started reporting traffic conditions from the Traffic Control Centre to all of the radio stations and other people wanting um, to know where there were delays, uh, our um, our traffic reporters in-house started saying, oh, it's at the Meccano set, and it quickly quickly became a public term. The public uh, became well aware of it. Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your information and insight. Thank you, David. Bye. And that's Graham Patterson, a long-term friend of the program and myself, a colleague of many years, who is a traffic engineer and worked for the government authority, the road authorities, and has a wonderful sense of history and its place and its interaction with the community. You're listening to Overdrive. Volkswagen recently launched a new Touareg large SUV. Our Rob Fraser was there at the launch. The latest model Touareg is a major improvement and my first impressions were overwhelmingly favourable. Initially available as one model, the launch edition, the Touareg is set to shake up the dwindling yet very competitive prestige SUV market. Sharing a number of components and the same platform as the Audi Q7, Porsche Cayenne, Lamborghini Urus and the Bentley Bentayga, the Touareg is the most technically advanced Volkswagen model so far. It is absolutely packed with comfort, luxury and safety features. Clever buyers will benefit from a saving of anywhere between twenty to over $35,000 and get a vehicle equal to the more prestige brands and the smug self-satisfaction knowing that you could have an overseas holiday from the money you saved. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Well, we don't do a lot of obituaries and certainly rarely for parents of people we know, but just like to report our good friend Edward Rowe, who's been on the program several times. His mother died, Dorothy Rowe. But I want to make the point, uh, Dorothy Rowe became quite well known. She never got on that super popular bandwagon and she didn't want to, but she was a psychologist. And one time I just reflected on a thing to Edward. He sent my email immediately to his mother in England and she replied within the day. And I really appreciated that. She was a person with her own busy life. But I think she really uh, showed great uh, love for Edward. Anything he sent her, I'm sure she responded to quickly. Just say very quickly, what she did was she bridged the gap between that very wordy world of clinical practice and the general public. I think that was good. She was a good communicator. She never made the big time, but I don't think she wanted to. She Her first book, Depression, The Way Out of Prison, was one, and then she later wrote uh, Wanting Everything, The Art of Happiness. Uh, Rob, we know a couple of people in the motor industry that have a particular passion for dealing with people with depression. 
Uh, this is true. In fact, one of them, Adam Davis, who's was one of the PR people from BMW, has just left to focus his energies on the charity he and his wife had set up called Drive Against Depression. He and his wife, Sarah, they've, um, they're co-founders, and they run a number of events during the year where the shared passion for vehicles actually is the starting point for people to talk about their particular issues. Mm. And I think it came from a very personal experience for him, which I won't go into too far, but certainly it's something that we're going to look to support in the future. It, it's lovely to use the fraternity of the motoring industry and people that love cars as a way of getting people together and not just pontificating on, but understanding that it has a broader role. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think the thing with depression is that there are a number of highly functioning people out there who have depression, and you would just never guess it. That's right. The Lifeline line is 13, 11, 14. If, uh, as one of the options, there's also Beyond Blue and so on, if someone is sinking and depressed. You're listening to Overdrive. Talking about really having a hero car, Mazda BT50. The utility has got a a map market a tricked up version, I suppose. Is that how I would call it, Rob? Yeah, look, it's just a little bit more bling added to what's already there and some decals and some different colouring. Really nothing more than that, but it, it does aim towards those people that just like a little bit more out of their utes, I think. Utes are taking on that more aggressive note that four-wheel drives used to have, and four-wheel drives have morphed into family cars. So is this important for Mazda to have a showcase like that? With almost every other manufacturer having some sort of a hero car, they need to have that to continue to keep themselves relevant in the market. Hmm. Alan, would you see yourself driving one? Uh, no, no, it's it's not me at all. Look, I, as you know, I test them regularly. And if I was going to buy one of those, I'd buy the Ford Ranger. Apple CarPlay, you love this sort of stuff, don't you, Alan? They've done a facelift. Is that important? It's a safety issue. What It stops you from using what well, doesn't stop you, but uh, it prevents the need to use your phone with your hands in the car. So they've made it now so that it doesn't take up the full screen and, and what have you. But the point about being able to use Siri without having to touch a button, I think, is the main thing that will apply, especially to P-platers. Alan, you'll be impressed. I actually made a phone call the other day without using the phone. I, I used the voice control from Apple CarPlay. I'm very proud of you, Rob. I knew it would happen sooner or later. And so Rob rushes into the 20th century, uh, 20, 21st century. Sorry. <laughs> Don't get too excited. <laughs> My mistake. Into the 20th century is probably more apt, I think, David. <laughs> yes, uh, actually, that was my intention. <laughs> you know that electric cars are doing well when they start doing incredible things on the racetrack. Volkswagen has just set a new lap record for electric cars on the Nürburgring of just over six minutes for the nearly 21-kilometre-long track. Is that symbolically important, gentlemen? Uh, look, I think it is. Uh, I, as you know, I'm a huge electric car fan. The only problem I've got currently is uh, the charging infrastructure is a little bit how's your father. But apart from that, uh, the acceleration is simply, it, it's stunning. It's just stunning. I still maintain my ambivalence towards them. <laughs> What's the word that comes to mind here? Luddite, I think. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Realist. 
Well, you were very cynical about hybrids, but time move on and things get better. But just over six minutes around a 20.8 kilometre is averaging 342 kilometres an hour. Average. But hell. I mean, considering if that's the average, how fast was he going in the straightaways? Remarkably fast. But he's not the quickest. For a long time, he's a little quicker than the record that stood for 35 years, set by Stefan Beloff in a Porsche 956, way back in 1983. The record now with a petrol engine car was the Porsche Evo Le Mans car, 918, of 5 minutes 19.54 just to be accurate, seconds. That's averaging 390 kilometres an hour. Well, you won't find me doing 390 kilometres an hour, David, so I'll, I'll stick to uh, the speed limit. But nonetheless, it is important for electric cars to be seen to be, I think, uh, achieving uh, great things. But, of course, someone has pointed out he could do that one lap, but then he'd have to stop and wait for an hour and a half while they charge the batteries again. So, Well, indeed, that's why they had two cars. <laughs> All right, lovely. Gentlemen, we'll catch up a few other things just after this break. You're listening to Overdrive. Rob, you've been driving a convertible. Now, I have always said that driving a convertible, the best time is at night on a balmy evening with the top down, perhaps coming back from a play or a night out. I really meant that in the summer months. Have you applied it with this cold snap? Thank you, David. I took your advice the other night and decided on a... It was a relatively clear night, so the stars were out, put the top down and took for a drive, but... I didn't quite realise it was only about 10 degrees, so fairly chilly out. <laughs> so you rugged up for it. But I did put the beanie on and away I went and it was absolutely beautiful. i got to tell you, I'm driving the BMW Z4. To me, a stunningly beautiful vehicle and I'm, I've been stopped a number of times by people asking about it and it's got, for me, who is larger than the average bear, I can actually fit pretty well in it and it's got a couple of really clever design features about it too. Mm, such as? Well, the, the one that I'm appreciate the most is the fact that it's got a fairly large boot for a convertible and when you put the roof down it takes up none of the boot space whatsoever so as i found out when i actually picked the car up you can fit a fair bit of gear in the back of that boot if you pack it properly more than enough for a weekend away and there's it's going to remain there no matter whether the top's up or down which is great the electric top obviously is a fairly standard sort of thing but it tucks in very neatly behind the back seats there And typically BMW have the drive mode selections that you can choose. Particularly one I've got is the four-cylinder two-litre engine, and it goes right up to the M40i, which, to be honest, I think would be fairly scary in that particular convertible. You don't really need more than the two-litre. It's very balanced, enough fun, and it's all about driving with the top down and enjoying yourself more than outright power, I think. And, of course, if you did want to have that car with a roof, you could always go for the upcoming Toyota Supra. Uh, Yes, which has a lovely swooping fastback. Alan, Rob said that it was a very good-looking car. What was your reaction to the early Z4s? I thought they looked a bit gawky. Well, I think there was a a famous Australian designer, Mark Newson, that said that Chris Bangle had designed some of the cars with a machete. And I think he was right. That was one of the cars to me that looked like it had been carved out of a piece of soap by a, a five-year-old. I didn't like them at all. 
This is the one that appeared in a couple of James Bond movies with product placement, I think. That's right. So the Z3 was, I think, a cute little car. Then they completely ruined it with that. It was just a monstrosity. Hmm. Uh, but the new one, the new current one, in fact, looks very much like a an 8 Series convertible. Oh. So they've got that same beautiful flow about them. So if you like that look, you'll love those cars. If you don't, obviously, then, you know, another posh brand would be for you. We actually Sorry. reviewed one going back nine years ago, the, the Z4 S-Drive 35i Coupe. And, the, I mean, that's a long time between drinks, I must admit, but... It very much had that long bonnet, almost like E-Type, that was very difficult to see over. And they've gotten over that a little bit now with the new design. It's more compact, a lot more stylish, I think. But again, taste is a very personal thing. It's still sitting well back, but as you say, it's not a bonnet in front of you that totally dominates the design. No, absolutely not. And reflecting on Alan's comment earlier about the sales of coupes and yours, about you know, people that want one, have one. When you're driving it, it's perfect for a particular purpose. And I think that's the issue. People buy those cars for a particular purpose. But anything more than that, it's not that great for. And that's why I think the sales are so limited. The, well, my point originally, I think, was that there's a group of people for whom that is great. So if there, if, if there are more than two of you, it is simply not suitable because there's only two seats in most uh, convertibles. One you're happy to leave behind. well i think it's a perfect opportunity but most of the people that say they don't like convertibles i think are jealous and as old bob hawk used to say i think they're bums (laughs) it is a case of horses for courses if you pardon the pun in the sports cars above eighty thousand dollars actually the mercedes c-class coupe is the biggest seller bmw 4 series a Mercedes E-Class Coupe is up there as well, but we are talking remarkably small numbers. They make up about 0.5% of our total market, so it is a luxury. Whereas the BMW at the moment is about eighth, just above the, well, in fact, the same numbers so far this year, 49, as the Porsche Cayman. So it is an acquired taste, it is a specific taste, but it is a rare taste, which I think is part of the appeal. Absolutely. I've been stopped so many times by people asking me about the vehicle and appreciating it, and that's because they just don't see them very often. After the break, we'll come back and we will talk a little about a new Range Rover with Alan, particularly. This is Overdrive across Australia. Alan, you've been driving the FEV, which to my mind sounds like a hat. It is the PHEV. <laughs> it is. Which is the Range Rover PHEV, the plug in hybrid electric vehicle. Alan, is this Range Rover light or does it still have all the attributes you would expect from a very expensive but very competent off road vehicle? Let me start by having a disclaimer. I think Range Rover is my favourite, favourite off-roading four-wheel drive car of all time, always has been, mm. and this is no exception. So you can go for about 40 to 48, depending on driving style, kilometres on just electric power alone. And if you do need a lot of extra kick, the petrol engine will still kick in, but it will still weight up to 150, uh, sorry, uh, 850 millimetres of water. 
uh, slow still water, obviously, still has the same ground clearance. Of course, it is a little bit heavier because of the battery pack. But it is a stunning car. Now, imagine driving something the size of a small office block completely silently. Yeah, the thing about a plug-in hybrid as opposed to a normal hybrid, a normal hybrid is really just a petrol engine helped along by an electric one. A plug-in hybrid says that we are not going to just charge the batteries off the petrol engine. You can actually plug it in and then use it for a relatively short distance, 40k, not bad, as a full electric vehicle. No need to start the engine at all. But it also, like any hybrid, the electric engine helps out in circumstances where it's needed, like acceleration. Absolutely right. So I, I drove it for the first day just on electric power alone, and I don't have anywhere to charge it, so it's now running as a normal hybrid. Again, you can't really tell when the motor's on or not. It really is quite a... And it's, it's almost 300 kilowatts. I mean, that's enough to be going on with. Alan, you have the Land Rover Sport, is that what you're saying? I've got the Range Rover Sport, so same same car but slightly smaller. Ah. So the Range Rover is the full size version. The Range Rover Sport is about a hundred odd grand cheaper, but isn't that much smaller in size. Still the same inside, looks the same outside basically, and uh, is a recommended retail price of one hundred and forty six six hundred. Uh, so price as tested is another twenty. <laughs> As always with uh, Range Rover, Jaguar, Mercedes, BMW, prices tested is 166358 so there's about 20000 worth of options. You're listening to Overdrive. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment... Send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And here we are again to talk uh, some quirky news stories at the end of the program. Who better to do that than our good friend Brian Smith? G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Lead us on with a story of the unusual. Well, I love a public transport story. And this is an excellent story about the unusual things that can get you a free ride, a legitimate free ride on rail systems around the world or on public transport systems around the world. So this is rather than buying a ticket, this is something you could do to get a free ticket. And uh, it's quite fascinating. So um, uh, the, in the Netherlands, the, um, the, the government allowed train travellers to ride for free if they carried a book, but a particular book. It had to be the copy of Jans von Veloft, Jacket of Promise, by author Jaar Sieblink. And uh, it's to do with the, the kind of the national country's national book week and its annual national literature festival. And so if you carried that book... You could travel anywhere in the country with that book as a token. Isn't that lovely, David? And in, in, in um, Virgin Trains in the UK had uh, some sort of uh, specials for British millennials. Um, they had produced a, a limited edition uh, run of annual rail cards, very cheap at £30, that uh, allowed people between t the ages of 26 and 30 to travel for about a third of the usual price. And they, people went crazy trying to get them. Um, so this was um, Virgin actually responded, uh, suggesting that if the 26 to 30 year olds just turned up, 
with an avocado, the kind of uh, emblem of, uh, of <laughs> the millennial lifestyle, the smashed avocado, uh, they could get 30% off themselves. So that's a lovely idea. Any others? Yes, David, uh, in Indonesia, in Surabaya, they had a waste problem, plastic waste. They offered people, they would get a, a bus ticket if they turned up with 10 plastic cups or five bottles, like waste ones. And Russia is one of my favourite to promote the 2014 Winter Olympics. Uh, one of the metro stations uh, had a ticket machine that uh, if you did 30 squats in front of it, you'd get a single ticket for it. So uh, uh, lovely. Could have been worse. Could have been the downhill, given it was the Winter Olympics. You... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and finally, uh, in Berlin in 20, January 2018, uh, a limited edition line of sneakers uh, of Adidas was uh, launched with um, in conjunction with BVG, the transit authority there. And the shoes actually had a, a design that included a bit of the um, their iconic sort of hideous train seat cloth. But on the tongue of the sneaker was an annual pass for travel across the network. You had to pay about $215 for the shoes and you, you got a year's travel for nothing. Would the shoes last a year if you kept travelling? Or... I don't know. And I don't know if you had to hold them up to the ticket machine or not. Well, there's another fitness things. Would that help pay for the hamstring you you pulled when you <laughs> lifted it up to the to the thing? Now, yeah. it, it's it's all very well to have or to try to encourage a certain sort of behaviour, but this, in most cases, I think, is just promotion. Although perhaps mm. the squats that you did in uh, Russia was a way of sort of saying that you know health health is rather good. And there's a relationship between. Uh, health and transit use, isn't there? People who travel by public transport tend to walk a lot more yeah. uh, than people who travel by other modes. This is a great problem of ride-hailing services like Uber or Lyft, mm. that they start to push towards mechanising the whole trip mm. so that you go door-to-door -door every time rather than get the benefit not only of health but of understanding your local community. Indeed. Indeed. We often talk about the, this problem of the first and last mile thinking that, you know, we need to help people get to and from uh, train stations and the like. But a mile is a pretty easy walk. And, uh, you know, yes, I am agree with you, David, that we should be walking rather than travelling by car. It's part and parcel, though, of the presentation I'm going to make at the Threadbow Conference. It's named after the town up in the mountains in New South Wales, but it's now held every two years around the world. Next one's in Singapore, where I'm talking about the fact that in the past we have judged competition in transport purely on the grounds of who's providing the cheapest or the fastest uh, type of um, travel service. Yet this sort of thing might well link us to a whole almost frequent flyer concept mm. that if you do something on public transport, you will get a benefit elsewhere. And so the idea of simply looking at price and even modelling or working out what price is is going to be complicated enormously by the Amazons of the world that will say, well, if you get our you know, transport, and they'll get into that as much as anybody, then we will cross-promote and give you all these other benefits which may not be much, but may appear to me, much may appeal to me, as does any frequent flyer system. Hmm. Interesting idea, David. People will find ways to cheat, I suppose, but it's a lovely concept that you might be able to um, promote appropriate or desired behaviour as a benefit rather than simply, um, you know, a cheaper 
travel or faster travel. Well, it is, and we will touch on this in the next story, which it is an issue that data is worth money. So you might not only get sort of a cross-promotion, but if you provide some information, we did a news story where Jaguar Land Rover might well give you cryptocurrency benefits by linking your car, providing the information from your suspension of your car and the condition of the road. And they will then provide that to councils and others that could benefit from it. Hmm. I I did a a chat to a mate the other day and he said, well, does that mean that if my son borrows a car, he'll drive over the one bump a hundred times in order to get a cup of coffee? Yes. (laughs) Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you once again. And hopefully we'll catch up soon. Thank you, David. And that was Brian Smith, and we were talking the unusual stories, the weird and wonderful, to do with motoring and transport. This has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their wit and wisdom in producing this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify and you can look up our Facebook page called Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.